Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Recently, I wrote an article for FrontPageMag.com, a review of comedian Dave Chappelle's new Netflix special. Chappelle predictably irritated left-wing critics with his comic shots at the transgender community, and I wrote that the left has used comedy and ridicule successfully against their political opponents for decades. But while they're great at dishing it out, they can't take it. The left gets absolutely furious and flustered into impotence when their sacred cows are mocked. The only comeback they have is to employ totalitarian measures like censorship and cancel culture, deplatforming their opponents on social media, and trying to delegitimize them by smearing them as bigots and haters. Part of the value of comedy is the comic's ability to speak truth to power in a way that no one else can. This is why it's critical that the right never goes into battle against the left without a serious stockpile of comedy and mockery in its arsenal. As the left's Machiavellian strategist Saul Alinsky infamously put it in his influential book Rules for Radicals, there is no defense against ridicule. And God knows today's insane left is certainly deserving of mockery. As I often note, the left has essentially owned our culture for decades. But one of the great cultural successes of the right in recent years has been the rise of the relentlessly hilarious Babylon Bee satire site. Its mock news headlines have been skewering the left and occasionally even the right so successfully that the left has been reduced to flailing desperately to defend itself, first with fact checks of the Bee's satirical news headlines, then with deplatforming by threatening to shut down the Bee's Twitter account, then with propaganda such as the New York Times labeling the site right-wing misinformation. Not only has the left failed to counter the Babylon Bee's offensive, but the Bee has grown enormously in popularity and become an unstoppable comedy behemoth that is subverting the left's previously invulnerable domination of the culture. Today at The Right Take, I am very pleased to announce that I'll be joined in just a moment by Babylon Bee CEO Seth Dillon for a great conversation about the very serious business of comedy. So don't miss it. Please take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already, so you can keep up with the conversations we're having here with important thinkers, writers, pundits, and storytellers. And if you like what you hear, a positive review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and don't touch that dial. My guest today at the Right Take Podcast is Seth Dillon, CEO of the wildly popular, controversial website Babylon Bee, the definitive source of fake news you can trust. I met Seth late last year at the Freedom Center's annual Restoration Weekend event where he gave a keynote speech, and he just knocked it out of the ballpark. He was funny and inspirational. Uh, he's just a great Christian conservative culture warrior doing really courageous work, I think, and I was very happy that he agreed to on the podcast. Seth, welcome to The Right Take. Hey, thanks for having me. I know you're a busy guy, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to assume your gender, um, but I'll, I'll get right to it. Uh, in the book Rules for Radicals, 
by the late left-wing strategist Saul Alinsky. Rule number five reads, quote, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There's no defense against it. It's irrational. It's infuriating, unquote. Now, the left has wielded this weapon successfully against its political enemies for decades now. Um, Saturday Night Live is an obvious example. But the right has gone much of that time with no counterpart. I mean, in recent years, our side has had Greg Gutfeld, and he's basically been it. Uh, Meanwhile, the left's had every late night talk show host, basically the entire entertainment industry aligned against the right, with no real heavy hitting pushback from our side until the Babylon Bee came along. And I think one of the important things the Bee has done for the culture war is that it's proven that the left can dish it out, but they can't take it, can they? Um, They don't, yeah, they don't like to be the the object of mockery. Um, There's a number of reasons for that. I think that I think that one of the reasons they don't like mockery is because mockery does effectively undermine their ideas and their arguments. Um, and they, and they don't like that. So they try to stop, they try to put a stop to it. Um, they also, you know, they're, they're, we, we see them behaving like tyrants all the time. Um, tyrants never like to be mocked at it. They don't, they, they don't, they, they don't like to be mocked. They don't like to be ridiculed. Um, they're they're hypersensitive to those things because they realize that when they're made to look like fools, they're taken less seriously, uh, and and their power is eroded by that. Um, and so, you know, the the left has a hard time with it. They 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 do enjoy comedy. They do enjoy making fun and ridiculing. Um, but they do have they do definitely have a hard time taking it. That's that's very clear. Um, and and the they're not very good at at comedy and mockery right now because so many of the things that deserve it that uh, warrant being made fun of are the things that they're completely unwilling to touch. They won't even go there and touch those issues because um, it's politically incorrect to do so. Uh, It's it's considered hateful uh, or harmful uh, to joke about these things. And so they've set up their own rules about what you can make fun of that prohibit them from actually making fun of the things that most deserve it. So they're not the funniest comedians anymore. And there are people pushing back and it's, it's good to see that. Yeah. I think nothing frustrates and infuriates progressives quite so much as when the tables are turned and they're the butt of jokes, they, they completely fall apart uh, and they have to push back. And as you alluded to this kind of totalitarian manner where they do things like they actually fact check the Babylon Bee. Uh, they try to smear it as a far right misinformation site, which is what the New York Times labeled you. Uh, you actually uh, threatened legal action against the Times for that defamation. Can you can you tell us about that? How that all went down? Yeah, you know it's it's weird that we had to do that. We did feel that we needed to do that. It wasn't like we. Uh, we don't like to take ourselves too seriously. If if we can, we respond in humor to things. The the problem there with the New York Times describing us as a far right misinformation site that just pretends to be satire is that um, if if credible sources and for for whatever it's worth they're considered a credible source um, if credible sources start describing you in those terms then you you really you become very vulnerable on these social media platforms you you end up with sites like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and, and, uh, and all the rest, um, looking at you as a threat to their community that needs to be put down. And so, um, 
our business was actually jeopardized by those mischaracterizations. And so, you know, on the one hand, we want to, we would love to just mock the New York times and, and, and make a joke of it and laugh at them for taking comedy too seriously or something like that. But on the other hand, it was like, well, if we, if that's all we do about this and this narrative is allowed to stick when it's false and damaging, they could actually put us out of business. So we did, uh, we did retain a law firm and sent them a demand letter and we were going to sue them for defamation if they didn't retract that. And they did retract it. So that was an important thing, an important step I think that we took in just defending our business. Uh, I would have preferred to never have to do that, but, but I, I don't really think that we had a choice. Yeah. And the left also tried to shut the bee down on social media. Uh, like Twitter, for example, locked the Babylon bees account after it awarded the title of man of the year, to uh, Transgender Health and Human Services Secretary Rachel Levine. That, that came after USA Today actually named Levine one of its Women of the Year. Uh, Twitter said it would restore the bees account if you deleted the tweet. And what was your response to that? Yeah, which I find very interesting because so much of the conversation around censorship, you know, you, you think of this as being a, a situation where they, um, you know, take down content that they don't like. And that's the typical way you think of censorship, but, um, there's a lot more censorship that happens than that. In a lot of cases, they rely on you to censor yourself. They, they, they realize that if they can put enough pressure on you and, and you become afraid that whatever you're going to say is going to get you deplatformed, you might actually not say it in the first place. And so that's what I call soft censorship. There's a ton of soft censorship happening in this case. I think they went beyond censorship to what I would describe as subjugation, where they were actually saying, look, you need to bend the knee and submit and admit that you did something wrong and take this down yourself. And, um, they, they required us to like check a box and admit that we engaged in hateful conduct. And I'm, I, I, my immediate reaction to that was, no, I don't think that we should do that. And, um, and that might be costly because it means that we're going to lose access to our Twitter following. But I just, I, I felt really, really uncomfortable with the idea that we were supposed to be the ones to delete the joke and admit that we had done something wrong. Um, you know, we didn't do anything wrong by making that joke. For one thing, the truth that Rachel Levine is a male, which is a man, you know, a male person, um, is not hate speech. It's just the truth, uh, whether you like it or not. Um, and it's just a joke. It's satire. So we wanted to stand by that. And I, I, I really felt strongly that if nobody ever does that, if nobody is ever willing to say, I'm not going to play this game, I'm not going to play by your rules, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the jokes I'm not supposed to make, even if it means there's a penalty there. If nobody ever takes that stance, then they're going to get away with it, all of this heavy-handed censorship. They're going to completely get away with it. They're going to run roughshod over our right to speak freely. And... Um, and you're going to end up with people censoring themselves in the end. So we felt like it was necessary to take a stand and say, no, we're not deleting it, even if that means we never tweet again. And we had, by the way, no view uh, or expectation of Elon Musk coming in and saving the day and un unlocking us. We, we had no idea that was going to happen. Yeah, I was just about to ask you that, actually. You anticipated my question. How did Elon Musk enter the picture and, and change the game for the B in terms of Twitter? Well, he was... Um, kind of standing by on the sidelines and observing what was going on with these platforms and how they were um, engaging in really heavy handed moderation and trying to control narratives. And, uh, and he saw it as problematic, deeply problematic and was, and was positioning himself to do something about it before this ever happened to us. And then, and then we got locked out because we refuted to delete this joke, uh, re refused to delete this joke. And, uh, and he reached out to us and, um, 
and said, I heard that you guys were suspended. You know what happened? And we explained the whole thing to him. And he, and he was like, man, that's crazy that they're, you know, they're trying to make comedy illegal. He's like, maybe I just need to buy Twitter. And, you know, we were, we thought he was kidding. You know, we didn't think he was being serious. We had no idea that he was actually making moves behind the scenes to, to do that anyway. Um, but he was seriously contemplating it and he thought it was outrageous that we got, that we got locked out. So, um, we heard that was when we first heard from him was after that incident. And then, uh, and then he, you know, made his bid to, to buy the platform and, and then tried to get out of it. And then they sued him to keep him in it. And it ended up finally going through. And he sent us a text on day one, actually, when he first took over as CEO and said, um, do you want the B restored? There will be no censorship of humor. So he was, he was very intent on getting the B back onto Twitter and making sure that people like us, you know, we, we often get credit as if this was, you know, as if it was solely about the B, like the B was the, the main reason why Elon had to buy Twitter was to set the B free. And, and of course he cared about setting the B free. He was, he was very open about that himself, but I think what happened to us was just one example of the type of censorship that he saw as being deeply problematic for, for our culture and society. Um, and, and specifically because, you know, we need the freedom to be able to push back on bad ideas like wokeness, which he describes as a threat to civilization, a, a dire threat to civilization. So, you know, he wants to see people be able to respond to those things. And so it wasn't just about the B. The B was just one example. It's been noted, it's been said many times in recent years that uh, we live in very satirical times. Um, what is the challenge for Babylon B writers when our daily reality now? is indistinguishable from satire. And I should mention that you do have a website that covers real news that reads like satire called Not the Bee. Uh, sometimes I don't know which, I have to check to make sure whether it's Not the Bee or the Bee in terms of the, the headlines. But what, what is the challenge when reality is literally indistinguishable from satire? Uh, I think that that's a common misconception is that it's not a challenge. I think the common misconception is that there's a lot of low hanging fruit or uh, it's a target rich environment, as people say. And I, there is truth to that. There is a lot to make fun of. Um, but but you, if you really think about it, uh, there is the, the actual process of satire and like how satire works is it, it, it uses uh, mechanisms like basically – uh, a, a, a method of caricature where you're exaggerating things that are real in order to make a point about them. And, and that can be exceptionally difficult when what you're exaggerating is already so exaggerated. So I think it's, you know, and, and this has been long recognized. I, I quote GK Chesterton all the time who said back in 1911 that the world has become too absurd to be satirized. And what he meant by that was it's already a caricature. So what are you supposed to do with that? You know, like you can't, you can't parody a parody. It's, it's, it's an impossible task. And so um, that is a very challenging thing. You end up with a situation where the, the headlines themselves read like satire. So how do you, what do you do with that? And then if you do manage to, to pull it off and you make a joke that it, that exaggerates um, something in a, in a funny and insightful way, you, you end up with reality bumping up against you 10 minutes later, you know, and the, and the joke becomes true. And then, you, and you have like a long list of what we call fulfilled prophecies uh, piling up. So um, I, I think it's honestly challenging. It would be, it would be easier to be doing our job in a world that was a little bit less crazy. I understand that you keep a spreadsheet 
taking note of uh, how many times B headlines have actually predicted reality. How many instances have you logged so far? And can you name one or two uh, favorite examples? Yeah, I think we have, um, I think there's like 96. I'd have to go back and check, but there's new ones. There's new ones popping up all the time. So we're getting closer and closer to that number of 100, uh, which will be a, a big deal when we finally cross that threshold. But um, yeah, I mean, there's just a bunch of examples. We, we've we made jokes about how Gavin Newsom was U-Haul's uh, salesperson of the year because he's driving so many people away from his state. And then and then you literally will have a headline in Fox Business. It came out like two months, I think, after we made that joke. Um, Fox Business ran a story about how U-Haul had literally run out of trucks because people were fleeing California for states like Texas and Florida at such a high rate. Um, you know, stuff like that happens all the time. So, you know, there's it, it to varying degrees of accuracy. You know, there will be there will be some real headlines that almost verbatim match the joke that we made. Um, and then at other times it'll be like at least similar enough where we consider it, you know, close enough that we can consider it a fulfilled prophecy. But but there's really funny ones. Like I honestly, one of my favorites is a joke that we did about Donald Trump where where we joked about him claiming to have done more for Christianity than Jesus himself. And that was a great Trump joke because it's the kind of thing that you could actually, you know, you could expect Trump to say that because he's he's got this big ego and he says these crazy outlandish things. And um, and that we made the joke back in 2018, and then in, 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 in it, and it got fact checked and rated false because he didn't actually say that, but it went viral because people believed it did. And then if and then in 2021, I think it was towards the end of 2021, he went on a radio show and claimed to have done more for Christianity and religion in general than any other person in history. And so he basically said the same thing that we said in our joke. He just did it three years later and after it had been fact-checked already and rated false. So um, I, I think headlines like that are hysterical because you get both the fact-check and the fulfilled prophecy angle. And I should point out that the B isn't averse to poking fun at the right also, in addition to the left, which I think is a good thing. Uh, one recent headline, for example, shows a picture of comedian Dave Chappelle and the headline reads, black guy becomes instant conservative star after saying one thing conservatives agree with. Uh, and you've made some jokes at the expense of Trump, uh, like the one you just mentioned. You've taken some brutally funny shots at the prosperity gospel guru, Joel Osteen. What is the reaction from conservatives when the B does that? Because my sense of it is that we have a better sense of humor about ourselves than the left does. Yeah, generally speaking, that's true. I think um, a lot of times it does catch people by surprise when they're suddenly the target of a Babylon B joke. They're like, wait a minute, I thought we were friends. Um, and they can be, you know, they can be bothered by the friendly fire. But um, I do think generally speaking that, that conservatives are a little bit more lighthearted when it comes to that. They don't generally, you don't generally hear people on the right talking about how, um, you know, anyone who criticizes them needs to be deplatformed or, or, or silenced, um, have their voice taken away. It's just not a conservative reaction to speech that we don't like. Our reaction tends to be, well, you know, if I don't like what you're saying, I can ignore you or I can refute you. I could even ridicule you in return. Um, so I, I, I do think that it's not as much of a problem on the right. Um, but, but we don't, we don't try to go easy on the right either. Uh, as you mentioned, we do make fun of targets on the right all the time. And I think, I think it's very healthy to do that. It would be, um, it'd be irresponsible of us, really, if we if we weren't doing that. 
And it's funny, you know, there's lots of things that, pe- that conservatives do that are ridiculous and hypocritical and, and, um, and foolish. And so, you know, it deserves, it deserves mockery too. That's a healthy exercise. And, and uh, one thing that's important for everybody left and right is to just take themselves less seriously. It's a very healthy thing from a, from a, uh, mental health, spiritual health, um, you know, it's just it's it's way healthier when we're able to actually laugh at ourselves and our own shortcomings rather than acting like we're always just completely above and beyond reproach and never do anything wrong. And, um, you know, one of the one of the ways of kind of examining ourselves is to be willing to laugh at ourselves. This is kind of a big picture question about politics. What is your take on the state of our culture today at large and where is it headed? I know that you're a free speech warrior. Um, Do you see losing that right as the biggest cultural threat that we face today? I I do. Um, There are a number of threats. I think, uh, you know, I think wokeness in general as an ideology is a huge threat. Um, But but you know the way that the way that the the woke narratives are advanced by by uh, by stamping out voices of dissent, that's even scarier because it's not just it's not just that that wokeness is out there; it's that wokeness is is being insulated and protected by the most powerful institutions, so that it can't even be criticized. Um, I think it's a, that's a great example. You know, you've got. Uh, the, the joke that got us kicked off of Twitter was a joke in defense of women and truth. It was a joke about how a male person is a man, no matter what they say, no matter what they feel, um, a male person is a man. And that's just a re- it's just a fact of reality. And we, we aren't doing women a service by denying that fact of reality. We aren't doing ourselves uh, a service by, by denying the truth. And so, you know, having the freedom to push back on bad ideas that have damaging effects in our culture and society is absolutely absolutely crucial we can't we can't fight these things uh successfully without without our voices and so i think free speech is really the issue of our time for sure i think you're right about that i think we've been seeing some conservative victories though in the culture war lately and you and the babylon b are partly responsible for that are you optimistic that the right can turn that ocean liner or the culture around and steer it back toward the shoreline of sanity uh, because i do know a lot of conservatives who say you know, it's over. The left owns the culture. Uh, you know, it was great while it lasted, but the American experiment is over. Are you pessimistic in that same way, or are you more optimistic that we're that we've got the momentum now? Uh, I'm not sure. Optimistic is the right word. Uh, I'm hopeful. Um, you know, I don't. I think optimism kind of carries with it this idea of expectation. Like I expect things to work out for them. I don't know that I necessarily expect them to, but I hope they do. Um, I'm I'm hopeful that um, I'm hopeful that people, and I do see a lot of this, by the way. I see a lot of really reasonable people who generally tend to be sympathetic to um, progressive ideas. Uh, I'm seeing people kind of waking up to. We, we talk about this concept of, and Elon Musk used these these words recently. He said people are waking up to woke. Um, you've got what happened over at, at at Harvard and these other Ivy League um, universities. The response there to the unwillingness of these uh, presidents of these schools to to um, to come out strongly against the anti-Semitic stuff that was going on on their campuses. 
Um, and the, def- the, the way that the way that some on the extreme left have gone so far as to even defend terrorism, like Hamas's behavior, where they're actually slaughtering women and children and raping and beheading them. And, and, and that's being defended under this woke moral uh, principle that for the oppressed, all things are permitted. I think a lot of people are seeing this stuff and they're realizing many of us realized it back when, you know, uh, BLM riots were happening and cities were burning to the ground and people were defending this as being like some righteous thing. It was like a good thing. It was, well, these are for, for the oppressed, you know, uh, violence is their voice. They don't have a voice otherwise. You know, you saw a lot of that happening back in 2020. Um, people weren't really getting up in arms about it yet. They weren't really, they weren't really waking up to the dangers of woke yet. It hadn't really affected them and their lives yet. But there's been more extreme examples that have happened where literally you have terrorism being defended and you have kids being targeted. You have kids being targeted with like these drag shows and the and these um, gender transition surgeries and the and the indoctrination that's happening there and the high rates of, of these kids getting sucked into this stuff and, and buying into it and, and demanding affirmation and and so many people wanting to give it to them and even take away parents rights and separate them from their parents to do this. There are people who are seeing this stuff for what it is and how extreme it is. All that to say, I, I am hopeful that that the that the extreme nature of these things will wake up a lot of reasonable people, and there will be so much fierce pushback on it that we will come back to some semblance of sanity. I, I am hopeful, uh, and I'm seeing evidence that there there's indications that that we are going to potentially move back in the direction of sanity in response to how extreme things have gotten, but. Um, it's it's hard to ever uh, to you know you never want to underestimate the depravity of man that's for sure. Yes, good point, and I think that's a great uh, distinction to make between optimism and hopefulness. Um, I, I happen to agree with that. Let me take things in a different direction and ask you about your background as a businessman and an entrepreneur, and it, how you came to be running the Babylon Bee in the first place. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, um, I my. My business journey started with internet, the internet marketing world. You know, I I saw um, a huge opportunity in the early two thousands as as uh, search engines were becoming wildly popular, and that's where everybody was going to get their information and to find products and services. and And you had the whole search engine marketing industry kind of develop and grow. and And I jumped into that um, um, back when I was a kid, just you know, graduating college. Um, and, and learned the ins and outs of how to market online by running client accounts. And, and it taught me a lot about business. It taught me a lot about how these businesses worked. You know, I, I learned their key metrics and what they were targeting. And, and I learned how to effectively run campaigns for them and, and generate a return on ad spend. And so that was like, that was what I lived, lived and breathed for several years. And eventually it translated to me striking out on my own and starting some of my own businesses, acquiring some businesses, selling some businesses. Um, I was dabbling in some e-commerce stuff for a while lead generation stuff, um, self-help legal filings, things like that. And then, uh, the B like the B just came across my radar in probably 2017, uh, late 2017. I started to see some of these headlines circulating on Facebook and I just, I thought they were hysterical. You know, I, it was really refreshing to see comedy done from a different perspective than you normally see. And, and I, I reached out to the guy that was running the site. It was like a one man show. And, um, and I was asking him if he wanted any money, like, did he want an investor? Cause I, I would love to just, you know, throw a little bit of money at it and, and get a piece of it or something. And, and, um, uh, and he was looking to sell it. So 
we ended up working out a deal only when his his deal that he was uh, you know he was he was talking to the Daily Wire at the time they were looking to acquire it from him and and when that fell through he and I ended up working out a deal so that's how I got involved with the B I was you know I never I never foresaw that I would be running um, the the largest and most successful satire site on the internet but here we are. And when you took over that role, did you ever think that it would one day lead to you testifying before Congress in defense of free speech against big tech censorship? <laughs> no way, man. When we when we first started this, this when we first got going with the B and and it became popular, and um, you know, it was just it was all fun and games, and we're just making jokes and trying to make people laugh, and and uh, and you know it. The, the, when the once the fact checks started happening and we started running into these issues where we're having to threaten uh, New York Times and lawsuits and all that nonsense, it would it got a little bit more serious. But um, I did not expect that we would eventually find ourselves, you know, in those positions where we're kind of battling it out for for free speech in the public square. I I get it. I understand that that you know comedians are going to be kind of on the front of those um, those. Uh, the front lines of those conflicts um, because, you know, comedians often they face a lot of attacks. They're, they're the ones that are the biggest threat to, to the regimes that are holding power. And so um, I, it makes sense, I guess, from that perspective, but no, I, I wasn't expecting that. And, and you can't really be prepared for that, but I am, I am glad that we're in a position where we have enough of an audience and enough influence that people care what we have to say. And they care that we're being, um, you know, throttled and, and, and threatened with censorship and, and being pressured to, to censor ourselves. And, and they care about finding a solution to that so that we can continue to make jokes that challenge the narrative, because that's what comedy is all about. What's next for you and the Babylon Bee? I mean, I hope the Bee keeps up its stellar work, but do you have any plans to expand its reach or direction in some way? And, uh, and what about for you professionally? Any idea on what your next step might be? Um, yeah, I mean, we always want to grow and expand. I think the big challenge there is that it, we're, we're, uh, we live on these platforms that hate us for the most part, you know, obviously Twitter slash X is an exception because we're friends with the CEO that, or the owner that helps. Um, but, but these other platforms that are more hostile to us, uh, the way that Twitter used to be, uh, we can't really rely on them for growth. And so the challenge for us has been to figure out, you know, what are the creative ways that we can actually grow uh, even as our audience on these social platforms and our reach there shrinks and, and we lose access to these followers. Like what do we, what do we replace that with? Um, that's been a big challenge. Um, and just coming up with creative ways to explore new, um, you know, content, uh, opportunities where we've been doing a lot of video over the last couple of years. And now we're exploring longer form stuff. We want to create some shows and, and, uh, and do more entertainment stuff. So um, we have huge opportunities there. A lot of people approaching us and we have our own ideas for what we want to do there. So um, look, look for big things on the horizon from us in that area, for sure. Personally, I mean, I just, I just want to see the B succeed to the extent that it can, you know, I'm, I don't want to get too distracted with other stuff. I may at some point write a book. I, I, I'm working on something along those lines, but um, my main focus is on the B and, and just continuing to grow it and keep it relevant. Great. I know you have a great Twitter or X account. I know you have a Substack page also. What, what's the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing and uh, your perspective on things? Oh, uh, Twitter X for sure. I mean, that's where 
that's where I sound off about things uh, personally. If you want to follow and hear my thoughts about anything and everything that's trending, um, I, I chime in there all the time. And um, uh, for the B, uh, that's probably the best place too, because that's the one place where we really feel confident we're not going to be censored or throttled. So it's really become our primary platform at this point. At this point. Seth Dillon, thanks for making the time to come on The Right Take. Thanks for being such an effective culture warrior. Please keep the bee alive and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll try. I don't want to let it die. And listeners, thank you for joining us here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. It helps a lot. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.